1980, one of the most iconic moments in sports ever happened. Some of us were alive for it, some of us were not. Most of us have probably heard of it before. In the 1980 Olympics, and I think, can we just be honest, the Olympics are great. Because even if you don't like sports, we can buy into the Olympics, right? Whether it's just because we want to see our country succeed or win. Or let's be honest, I think the real reason why people, especially today, we love the Olympics is we love the stories behind the athletes, right? We love to hear like the random story where it's like a uh, kid uh, was an orphan and he he got a job when he was four years old and would walk like five miles both ways and still train to be this figure skater and all these sort of things. We love the stories hearing it behind that. That was a little extreme, I know. But for real, we love those. That's that's half the fun. Like, honestly, some of us, if we're honest, we could care less about the event itself if there's not the story, there's not the person behind it. And in 1980 at the Olympics, there was a huge deal going on. It's at the height of the Cold War. And at the time, there is hands down not a better hockey team in the world than the Soviet Union's national team. They were just perennial powerhouses, and they were quite literally men among boys. They were actually a part of the Soviet Army. It was a really interesting documentary. I can't remember what it's called right now, but it told the story from kind of their side. And it was crazy to learn that quite literally these guys, their job in the Army was to be like stud hockey players. And so these guys were, were taken as young children, and they were formed. I mean, they are the best and the brightest. They were the prodigies of, of all prodigies when it came to hockey. And I'm pretty sure they pumped them full of steroids. Maybe that's a lie. But they just, I mean, they were bred to be just fierce hockey players. And they played together for years, and they dominated kind of the world circuit. Now, the United States, on the other hand, uh, had amateurs who would play. They would have college players who played. They'd never usually had played before, and they'd put together a team, and uh, then they'd field it. And unsurprisingly, the United States typically did not do very well in the hockey realm in the Olympics. And in particular, though, it didn't really matter, because if you weren't the Russian team, you probably weren't going to do well. Now, maybe some of you are like, dude, I've seen Miracle. Let's speed it up a little bit. Uh, how many of you guys have seen Miracle? Isn't that a great movie? I love that movie. So here's, here's, here's the short version of the story. You have one team that is made up of just these stud athletes, the best of the best, those who have played together for years, have all the chemistry. And then on the other end, you have the United States that is pulled together from a bunch of random guys from different schools who most of them have never played together. Some of them are going to go on and be perennial all-stars in the NHL, a couple maybe Hall of Famers, but some of them quite literally will hardly amount to anything later on. Herb Brooks is the coach of... Uh, the U.S. team, and he goes with a very interesting strategy. Instead of picking the best of the best, instead of just saying, who were the All-Americans this year? Let's take them. Everyone else, let's not do that. Instead, he painstakingly did research on every single person. And he wasn't just looking for the best players. He was looking for the right players. He was looking for the players who, who would fit into the system. And in particular, he was said that the things he was looking for is he was looking for those who were humble and hungry. He was looking for those who would care far more about the, the name on the front of the chest than the back. That he wanted those who just wanted to win so bad. That they didn't care about just themselves. And so this unconventional way 
left a lot of people a little bit skeptical about a team they already didn't think would happen. And as you may know, what ends up happening is they go on and they're defeated at first uh, quite handedly by this team, but they eventually face them uh, in, in, the, in the semifinals and they beat the Russian team. I mean, it's one of the most iconic sports calls where, 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 where the time is ticking down and you hear that, do you believe in miracles? And let's be honest, it's basically when we won the Cold War. I mean, the Berlin Wall coming down is kind of a thing too, but when we won that game, that was kind of the Cold War was nail in the coffin, right? But for real, it was this huge moment, and it's this great lesson in understanding that maybe we don't always need what the world would say is the best of the best. That maybe those who the world would say is bred for this, who is bred for this time, that maybe they're not always the ones who in the moment is going to come through. They're not the ones who are going to be remembered in history as these great heroes. But then the cool thing about it is most of us probably couldn't tell you half of the names of the guys on the team. This morning we're continuing our series uh, called Unbelievable, uh, the story of the early church. And we're today going to explore this idea of some of the leaders of the early church and how they were unbelievable. And they weren't unbelievable because they were the best and the brightest. They weren't unbelievable because from, 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 from an early age, someone had invested in them to be this perfect person. In fact, quite opposite for many of them. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at a few of these leaders. I want to look at some of these principles from Scripture. And then I want to talk a little bit about what that could mean for us. Because let me say this at the forefront. Every single one of you have been called to be a leader. Now, not every person is called to be a pastor of a church. Not every person is called to be in what we'd usually look at as like a really official leadership title. Titles do not reflect leadership. We've all experienced people who have titles that aren't leaders, right? A leader means you have people following after you. A leader is someone who, who, who people are going, going uh, who, who's marching forward and other people are following behind. Show me a leader and then show me their followers. If they don't have anyone following, they're not a leader. And the reason why I say everyone is called to be a leader is that when Jesus gives his great commission, when he leaves, what does he say? He says, go into this world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, what's interesting is normally when we hear that, we just think, all right, sweet, we need to build really big churches, get a bunch of people to pray prayers, get baptized. That's how we'll be a part. Yet disciple is a very distinct word. I want to talk first about the disciples for just a moment. The disciples were not who I would have picked if I was starting a revolution, if I was Jesus. You see, sometimes when we hear the word discipleship, we automatically go to this place that this is a Christian term. This is something that Jesus made up. And honestly, that's not true. Jesus was a rabbi, which means he would have been a teacher of the Old Testament, the law. And what would happen in this Jewish culture, in ancient culture, is you would have these rabbis who would become these teachers of law. And really what it meant is each rabbi kind of had their own interpretation of the scriptures of the time. And so what they would end up doing is they would have disciples, they would have people who would learn under them, and they would learn their way of interpretation, their way of how they saw the Torah, how they saw the word of God, and what that meant for their life. And it was a prestigious thing to become a disciple. What's crazy is uh, 
like little boys in, in ancient Jewish culture, they would spend the first you know, few years of their life where they would memorize the first five books of Scripture. Isn't that crazy? Like I, I, can't, I can hardly read Leviticus sometimes, let alone think about uh, memorizing it. But they would learn this. And, and as time would go on, you know, they would learn a trade. But those who were the best of the best as far as the students, they would continue on this track. And eventually, those who were kind of the, the road scholar of the day, those who would kind of think about, in, in our modern kind of culture, thinking about someone who gets into like a prestigious like research fellowship at like an Ivy League school, these were the disciples of most rabbis of the day. These would have been the best and the brightest. And yet what's interesting is Jesus, as a rabbi, doesn't go that route. His 12, he picks one person who's going to betray him. He picks about seven fishermen. Uh, he picks uh, one tax collector. He picks likely a construction worker. And a few of the other disciples, we actually don't really know what they did. Uh, there's only one disciple that scholars believe may have possibly uh, been someone who really would have been on kind of that professional disciple, eventually rabbi track. So when you think about it, Jesus' plan is one that is kind of set up to fail, right? I mean, think about it. He, he He's picking people that maybe aren't the most qualified. It would be like today to go, and I'm not, don't take anything mean about this, but it would be like today taking someone um, who has no big educational background, who just kind of does a, a more of a manual labor job and be like, you, sir, are going to come and you are going to work for NASA right now. Like this is sort of that sort of thing where it's like this just doesn't make sense. And yet what Jesus is reflecting is something that is taught even in the Old Testament. In, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find uh, a, a, sort of a famous quote in which uh, God is talking. And this is this moment where David, maybe you've heard of David before, David from David and Goliath, David who eventually becomes uh, arguably the greatest king uh, of Israel, David who is this man after God's own heart, David who also was had some issues too himself, which is good news because me too. But David's family was predicted, was told by the Lord, would, would, would provide the next king of Israel. And when the prophet goes to find him, find this next king to anoint, David quite literally is the last of the sons who they thought. And God teaches a very important lesson that I believe Jesus continues on in his ministry. He says this to Samuel the prophet, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. I think when Jesus began his ministry, I think when Jesus began this new kingdom, his idea, maybe minus Judas, that's a different story. I think he was looking for the right people. He was looking for the hearts. And this morning, before we go any farther, I just want you to hear a word from the Lord. That God isn't looking for you to have everything all together to become a leader. He's not looking for you to have these natural uh, gifts and abilities that are automatically just perfectly ready to be able to be used in his kingdom. Because here's a common theme throughout scripture and throughout life even today, is that God uses the overlooked the unremarkable, and the unqualified to accomplish the unbelievable. Every single time, that's what he does. In fact, oftentimes when we look at moments in Scripture where we see those who are looked at as the best and the brightest, 
Oftentimes, it didn't work out very well. In fact, David's predecessor, a guy named Saul, was 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 handsome, good looking. I mean, picture kind of me um, in when you're thinking of Saul. You know, tall. You know, probably about six five, muscular. Um, fit the bill of what the modern look of a leader would be. And yet, over and over, we find that God would use those who are willing and humble. He would use those in which He would get the most glory in. And so, as we approach some of these stories. In Acts, as we approach this, I want you to not check out and say, yep, not a leader. He's talking to someone else. I am talking to every single one of you. Because I believe, as we talked about last week and we talked about the Spirit, is that when we have the Spirit of God quite literally living inside of us, it doesn't matter what the vessel is. It doesn't matter what the world sees. Unbelievable things can happen through the Holy Spirit. Unbelievable things can happen when we are willing to, to be brave and follow after the call that God has for us. All right, so this is what I want to do. I want to tell a few stories. Many of them are going to be paraphrased, and then I'm going to get into some principles on leadership. Is that cool with you guys? If, even if you say no, I'm still going to do it anyways. So let's talk about some of these leaders. All right, so the disciples of kind of the, 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 the head leader of all the disciples was a man named Simon, who God eventually uh, renamed Peter, or it means rock, which is kind of cool. Now, Peter, honestly, would not be my like guy that I'm picking as my captain of my team. Peter was impulsive. Peter oftentimes uh, kind of had like foot and mouth syndrome. Maybe some of us can, can relate to that where you say stuff and go, oh, that was a bad idea. Uh, Peter oftentimes would bite off more than he could chew. Peter was a coward at moments. Peter also was not always a man of his word. He'd say, I'm going to do this, and then he'd bail. He'd think he was going to do something cool and then kind of blow it. Also, Peter cut a guy's ear off one time. So if you're like, ah, I can't be a leader, here's the thing. You've, most of us, I'm going to guess, maybe only like two or three of us in here have cut someone's ear off. Um, so I think we're among good company. But Peter goes on to be this amazing leader in the early church. And what's cool that we see is it wasn't like after after Jesus had restored him, it wasn't like, Peter was this perfect man the rest of the time. One of my favorite things about Scripture is that every single person, really other than Jesus himself, we see in them not just perfect people who have their life all together. And God continued to use them. Peter, honestly, we find, if you want to read, uh, in, if you read through Acts, you'll find, Peter had some prejudices, kind of racially driven prejudices that the Lord worked through. That through the Holy Spirit, through conversations with other people, God worked through. And what's amazing about it is it reminds us when we look at someone like Peter, we are reminded that, 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 that our downfalls, that our, our issues, our, our things that we're working through don't disqualify us from moving forward. There's this thing, we sometimes like to use this word, holiness. And holiness isn't holier than now. Holiness just means set apart. And holiness is a process. It's not something that happens overnight. It's something that God is constantly refining us. He's constantly chipping away, uh, which I feel a little uncomfortable as I'm doing this because there's some love handle type stuff here uh, to be chipped away. But he's constantly trying to make us more and more in the image of Jesus. Now, what about Paul? Paul, we talked a little bit about last week. Some of you guys, uh, if you've never read Paul's uh, story of how he became a believer, uh, the, I'm not going to read the scripture of it, but it comes in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. You can read it sometime. Paul 
was a unlikely, unbelievable leader. Here's why. Paul, no one ever would have thought would have been a Christ follower. Paul grew up as a disciple. He would have been one who would have studied under a, uh, a particular rabbi. And in particular, his would have been more on the side of what we sometimes use a term as zealot. Zealot just means it comes from this word zeal, and it's just sort of this extreme over-the-top thing. And in particular, people who were zealots, which Jesus said a few of his disciples were zealots, typically were people that were so focused on their own nation to the point that they, they, they would rather see harm come on just about anybody and everything else as long as their nation did well. Now, that's not a scriptural thing, and we could get into more of that later because uh, we see that God says, no, 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 I want to use the people of God to bless all nations. But Paul is this guy who grows up, and, and, and he is just radically on fire for the Jewish faith, for the Jewish people, but he's missed kind of the first love of Christ. And what it leads to is he becomes part of a group that early on is killing the Christians. There's a man named Stephen who's an amazing leader who God uses. And he actually becomes the first martyr, the first person who dies for his faith. And scripture reminds us and lets us know that Saul, who eventually becomes Paul, is there. He's actually standing there among the crowd as this is happening. Now, Paul is such an unlikely guy, and his, 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 his story is unbelievable, too. He's walking down a road, and all of a sudden he is blinded, and he encounters and experiences the risen Savior. And right there, his life is completely changed. What's crazy, though, and how we know how unbelievable and how we know that it is a legit story, how we know that it is, uh, in my opinion, true, is that what, what happens is Paul has sort of a process of where he is raised up by other believers. He goes and spends time with them. In fact, what's kind of crazy is people think he's like a spy at first. The early church is really like worried about him. No, 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 no. I'm not going to take him in. I mean, that would be like us today being like, let us invite someone who's like a head in ISIS and have them come in and be a part of our community. All of us would probably be pretty fearful, right? Like he's a mole. He's just trying to get in and infiltrate and he'll kill us all. Like that would have been the moment where these early church leaders are, are hearing that Saul of Tarsus has given his life to the Lord. It would be hard to believe that. And yet Paul, we see, is used for amazing things. He goes on and does amazing things. Paul leaves a life that is comfortable. I mean, the the, the lifestyle that Paul would have been living, the power that he would have had, to me it's still unbelievable that he would leave it. I mean, some of the disciples, too, left very steady jobs. They left very stable homes. And the idea that they would do it, is because no leader, no person ever leaves those things unless they really believe in what's going on. Am I right? I mean, think about it. No one's willing to die for something if they don't really believe in it. But Paul's story is amazing. And Paul's story reminds us this, and I think it was an early lesson for uh, the early church, is that God can and will use anybody. That even the people who we would look at as enemy. As those who are, those who we'd say like, I don't want anything to do with them because they are bad, they are weird, I think they are dangerous. Those are the people that oftentimes God most wants to just radically change and use for his glory. And there's modern day examples that we've heard of, we've experienced of people who have had uh, amazing conversions uh, where they've gone from, from, from really persecuting Christianity uh, to, to just uh, sold out for the gospel. But it's this reminder, again, that for some of us who want to check out in these type of sermons and say this isn't for me, hear this. God can and will use anybody. 
It's not just the ones who everyone sees leadership potential. That's the person. Everyone who says, yes, that's who we want to follow. No, 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 no. Again, God uses the overlooked, the, 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 the un, underqualified. He looks for those people to do the unbelievable things. All right, so check this out. Acts chapter 16 is one of my favorite stories in all of Acts. Acts chapter 16, uh, and if you want to write this down and, and check it out later, go uh, read this this week, Acts chapter 16, 11 through 34. I want to tell you the story of the founding of one of the churches, okay? So when we look at the, the New Testament, we have Acts, which is sort of a story uh, of the early church. And then we have lots of different things like Romans, like Philippians, like Ephesians, uh, like First and Second Corinthians. Uh, all of those are letters that were written by different apostles, oftentimes Paul, to different churches that they started. Okay? One of my favorite uh, letters that we find is called Philippians. And this was written to the church in Philippi. Now... What's kind of crazy is a lot of the letters when we read them is Paul both encouraging and being nice, but also saying like, hey, y'all, you need to get your act together. Now, one of my favorite uh, uh, people is a professor at Anderson. Her name is Dr. Kimberly Majeski. And, and one of my favorite things that she says is that the early church was a hot mess. Because oftentimes we idealize the early church and we say, if we could just get back to the early church, then things would be good. Yet when we say that, it's like, okay, so what you're saying is you want to get back to the early church where we're dealing with having to tell people, hey, please don't participate in uh, temple prostitution. Hey, please, uh, maybe don't mistreat your slaves. Uh, please, if you, could, if you could stop, you know, engaging in, in kind of weird uh, sexual uh, type of things and all these things. We, do we really want to get back to all of the early church? I don't think so. Some of it's kind of crazy. And we're going to talk more about uh, next week about this community, about some of those things. There are obvious things that we should emulate of the early church and give us a great model. But there are some stuff where sometimes it's, it's kind of like nostalgia, right? We, we only remember or look at some of the good things, and we kind of you know, throw out of the back some of the bad things. But Philippians, the book, the, the letter in which Paul uh, wrote to the church in Philippi, Philippians is one of the few churches that Paul really doesn't have anything super bad to say. For the most part, he's just writing them and saying, you're my friends, I love you, you're doing great, keep doing this, don't stop this. He doesn't really have to say like, hey, please stop like worshiping idols and please stop doing these sort of things. And so I want to tell you the story that we find in Acts of the founding of that church. And what's kind of crazy is it's not from a group of people that we would think. You know, one of the issues in in, 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 in the unbelievability of uh, of the leaders that we see in the New Testament that we don't always see in modern day today is that sometimes we end up just being so close with people who are just like us. Where in a lot of ways, if you were to walk into most churches in the United States, even in this one in some ways, you would find people who think alike, look alike, are completely alike. And I'm not saying all of that is bad. I'm not going to like poo-poo all of that. But in the New Testament, the early churches, it was amazing and unbelievable how God would pull together the people of God to advance the kingdom. So let me tell you the story of how this happens. So Paul and one of his traveling companions named Silas, which that's where we got the name for our son. Silas uh, was from the Jerusalem church, and he started to travel around with Paul in some of his missionary journeys. And so Paul and, and Silas and then Luke, who, who wrote this book, were traveling around, and they arrived at the city of Philippi. 
And at this time, there's not really anyone who is there who's a Christ follower yet. The, the word hasn't really spread to that point as far as we know. And what's interesting is the Jewish people who are spread all around, in most major cities, they would have some sort of synagogue, temple-type place where they would gather. But in this city, uh, it just kind of shows that it was so diverse in all sorts of pagan different religions that they didn't even have enough really people there who were Jewish uh, followers uh, who had their own place. So they just sort of had this meeting area outside. And so Paul and Silas find this area and they began to dialogue with uh, the people who are there. And one person who is there and starts to listen is a woman named Lydia. Now, Lydia, uh, it says she was a, a God-fearing Greek which essentially just means that she believed in the one true God. She was very interested in that, but she wasn't born uh, as a uh, Jewish person. And so in a lot of ways, the Jews would have seen her kind of as like a second-class citizen type person. But this woman, we find out, has a lot of means. I mean, she is sort of this fashion mogul. We we find out that she is a a, a seller of uh, dyed purple uh, garments, which, again, we don't know all of what that means, but essentially it means girl had money, girl had some power, had some prestige. Um, and so this lady, though, hears the testimony of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and she gives her heart to the Lord. She's filled with the Holy Spirit, and right there, she becomes the very first Christ follower there in Philippi. And she invites Paul and Silas to come and begin to kind of set up shop to start out a church, a gathering of people in her home, which we can make some assumptions was probably big. Like, it'd be like, we're going to the Swank house, we're going to Lydia's house, that's where the party's happening. And so that's this first person. Because Paul and Silas are bold, they've left the comforts of their home, they're risking life and death, sharing some of these new thoughts in these new places, Lydia gets saved. Next, they're walking around through town, and there is this girl there who has some sort of possession by some sort of spirit that gives her an opportunity to sort of be able to be prophetic and and, and predict things and know things. And this girl is just walking around bugging Paul and Silas so much. Now, she's speaking truth that there's something about these men and their God that is significant and different. And eventually, Paul, I think, kind of got like fed up with like, are you kidding me? Kind of like when the kid's in the back seat and you're trying to drive and then you just you kind of get to that point. He, he kind of has a holy turnaround with this girl. And he casts out this spirit, this demon inside of this little girl. Now, what's crazy is in that moment, this girl is freed, one, from an actual internal slavery that was going on inside of her. But two, she was kept by owners who were using her in kind of her weird gifting to make money. And immediately these men are frustrated, these owners are frustrated, and free her because she's no longer any use to them. And so in this moment, we see how the good news of Jesus, how the Holy Spirit frees people, and how immediately this girl, whose life would have been dark, would have been marked by just being a slave, she's set free. She has a new lease on life. And so this is the second person to have their life changed by Jesus, the second Christ follower in Philippi. Now, after all this is going on, this creates quite an uproar in this city. And so what ends up happening is Paul and Silas are taken by the local officials. They are beaten and they are sent off to prison. Now, they're told that they're supposed to be taken care of kind of nicely. Just put them in prison, leave them alone. But instead, the jailer there uh, decides to take matters into his own hands 
And so what he does is he puts them in shackles. Now, when we think of like stocks and shackles, we think of probably more like uh, New England colonial time where they'd be like this, where they'd be like, you know, people would come by and throw like eggs and all that sort of stuff and might call them witches and things like that. But in ancient culture at this time, it would have been far more likely that they would have contorted them in different weird ways. So you'd have been like perpetually stuck in like a really uncomfortable yoga position. Uh, but the idea is that your body would seize and cramp up and it would just be a painful, torturous thing. And so this is what happens to Paul and Silas. But what we find out that happens, which I think is so cool, this is one of my favorite stories in Acts, is that these men are singing songs of praise. They're praying, they're singing hymns. I mean, how annoying would that be if you're the jailer? Like, you're just like, oh man, I'm going to torture you so good. And these guys are just praising God despite of all of that. That would annoy me so much. And as they're praying, as they're singing, as they're rejoicing, all of a sudden there is this violent shake. And their shackles fall off, the doors swing open, and they have the opportunity to leave for freedom. Now, as this happens, the jailer is so taken back, he doesn't know what's about to happen. And what Scripture tells us is that the jailer gets out his sword, and he's about ready to just kill himself with his sword. Now, the context of why that is, is is this guy would have been very duty-bound. This guy knew that if these uh, prisoners would have escaped, he would have been likely probably killed or punished in some sort of way. And obviously, he doesn't want to face those punishments. And so before, though, he can do that, Paul and Silas call out and tell him, don't do that. We are still here. And this amazing turn of events, what ends up happening is Paul and Silas have the opportunity to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with this jailer. And immediately, this jailer gives his life to the Lord. He receives the Holy Spirit, and him and his entire family are baptized. This is the story of the church in Philippi. It's not started with a bunch of people who were alike. It was started with a single wealthy woman, a little girl who used to be a slave who had mental issues, and likely some sort of ex-GI, blue-collar type of guy. Three people who in every culture we would say don't go together. And yet, not that many years later, Paul is writing to this church. This church who he dearly loves, who he sees, is doing amazing things. All of this can happen because the leaders, the apostles, Paul, Silas, We're faithful in this idea of being all in on sharing the gospel, on advancing the kingdom. You see, they bought into this idea that churches are not started by perfect people. They're not filled with purple people. Well, they're not filled with purple people either, hopefully. (laughs) Great example, not perfect. That was all part of the plan. But churches, they're not started, they're not ran, they're not continued on by perfect people. It's by changed people. It's by people who experience the powerful change of the love that comes from Jesus Christ. And their lives are forever changed. And it is that that attracts people into this family, into this community. You know, what blows my mind, what's so unbelievable about these leaders is that they experience some pretty nasty things. They experience beatings, imprisonment, shipwrecks. They left their homes. They went to places where they likely didn't know the languages that were there. And they did all of that 
because they were called. They did all of that because they were changed. They did all of that because love motivates you to do crazy things, unbelievable things. And they were spirit-led. They believed that God was going to come through. They didn't leave worried whether or not they were going to make it. They left with confidence knowing that if God called them to it, he would see them through it. And almost all of them died for the faith. Now, again, I believe that Jesus is real. I believe this isn't made up because no one does that. You don't have all of these people who do that. All right, so let's talk about this real quick. I'm going to hit through these really quickly on, on, on kind of four principles that when I study New Testament leaders and I say, how, how, how could we as Christ followers today emulate them? What would be four ways that we could try to be like them and, and, and experience sort of life to the fullest? The first thing is to be humble. Every single leader we find was humble. And when I say humble, I in particular mean that they thought of others more than they thought of themselves. Jesus is our perfect example, right? And he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And that is sort of our thing. In, in Philippians, the book that Paul, the letter that Paul wrote, he said this. He gives us this sort of example. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you, to the interests of others. Can I be honest with you? Do you know why this one is so difficult, I think, in our culture? One, I think it's just human nature that we're really selfish. Let's be honest. Even sometimes when we're trying to do things for others, we do it just so we get something back. Let's be real, right? Oftentimes it's hard to to be truly selfless. But our culture so much is about you deserve this. You've worked hard, so you should get that. Whether we want to or not, everyone thinks everyone else is entitled, but we're all pretty entitled. Let's be real. Culture, marketing, uh, puts it out there that we deserve everything, that we should get all of these things, and that we should work as hard as we can to get those. I'm not saying hard work's bad. I'm not saying things are bad. I'm not saying all of those. But in reality, we get to this point where we have been pumped up to not be humble, to make things kind of about ourselves. At least I'm guilty of that. Maybe I'm the only one. But there's this reality that if we want to be more like Christ, we have to look less like the world. We have to look less like, how can I look great? How can I be great? How can I get what I want? And start looking and saying, how can I serve? And we don't do this just to be like some sort of martyr and like live this depressed life or something like that. We do this because we have been changed. We do this because Christ gave everything for us. And this is a small reflection back by being humble. We, we look to be accountable. One of the things, uh, one of the reasons why I think that they were able to keep going forward is that they were in community. I'm not going to talk a ton about accountability or community today because we're going to talk about that next week and you have to come back for it because I'm really um, excited uh, to talk about that. But they're accountable. It wasn't like they were trying to be lone rangers. One of the cool things that you see with Paul is that he was constantly bringing other people around him, whether it was Luke or, or Silas or Timothy or Barnabas. They always were going out in groups. And I think some of the reason they did this was they, they, they got this idea that, 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 that two are better than one. They got this idea that if, if it's just me on my own, it's going to be so easy to want to quit. It's going to be so easy to fall back into the patterns. And the truth is, many of us want to do amazing things for Christ. Let's just be real. I don't think anyone sits back, becomes a Christian, and says, yeah, I want my life to be meaningless, and I, I don't want to be like Jesus. Most of us at the beginning all want to be like Jesus. But we set ourselves up for failure. We don't seek accountability 
And let's be honest, the reason why we usually don't seek accountability, we don't get deep into community, is because if we do, then there's going to be expectations. If we seek accountability, guess what? We'll probably be held accountable. And there's part of us that, if we're really honest, kind of like not to be held accountable. We live in a culture, and I am so guilty of this, of always just giving maybes, right? Kind of keep things open just in case something better comes along, just in case I wake up that day and just not feeling it, need a self-care Saturday. Not Self-care is good, but let's be honest, some of us are always like every day is a self-care day. day. We're like constantly like, where can I find a time to sort of check out and not follow through on commitments? And I'm talking to myself, y'all. It's easy. There's the days where you wake up and it's like, man, I do not want to parent today. That sounds awful. (laughs) Could I not be a good husband? This would be kind of a nice day to not have to be a good husband. And even easier sometimes it's like, man, how great would it be to not really have to try to be a Christ follower? To just live into the things that I want to live into. To be as selfish as can be. But we can't take those days out. We need accountability. We need to be brave. In Second Timothy, Paul writes to, to Timothy, who's a young pastor. He's he, he, he's mentoring, and he says this: "For the Spirit gave us, uh, Spirit gave uh, the the Spirit of God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self discipline." My friends, fear is a reality, but fear is from the enemy. I mean, again, I I can't even imagine getting to a place where I am being tortured and I am praising God. I get a hangnail and I'm mad at God. But they're brave. They continue to go forward. I, I, I don't know about you. There are times where I feel like, all right, God, if I get like one significant moment that happens where I'm kind of persecuted, maybe then I can kind of check out and that's sort of like my pass to heaven for the rest of the time. You know, it's interesting, there's, there's stories today about how uh, arguably Christianity is persecuted far more than it ever has been in, in kind of modern times that we know. Now, none of it is here. It's other places. There, there are Christians who are probably in this very moment being killed for their faith. And the truth is, I don't know about y'all, but I think someday if we get into heaven and we are exchanging kind of stories, I don't know about y'all, but I'd be kind of embarrassed to share some of my persecuted stories, my stories where I felt like I just couldn't be brave in those moments. When I think about the stories from the early church, when I think about some of our brothers and sisters in places in the Middle East, in Africa, and places like that, where they're being persecuted for their faith, and sometimes we're like, oh, I'm a little nervous, like people might not like me anymore. We have to be brave. Because what we're dealing with isn't temporary things, we're dealing with eternal things. We're not dealing with like, oh, it'd be kind of cool if people could get to know Jesus. Like, that'd be kind of nice. Their life might be a little better and our, our nation would be cooler. No, we're talking about literally people's eternities. We're talking about people's lives today. We're talking about if we really buy into that Jesus is who he says he is, that if this is really real, we are talking about the most important thing for people. We have to be brave We have to be bold. We have to be willing to risk it all. And then finally, we have to be spirit-led. It doesn't matter how much accountability. It doesn't matter how brave you could be. It doesn't matter how humble you are. If it's not led by the Spirit, it'll be led in vain. 
In Acts chapter 4, we're told that after after some of the apostles were uh, getting out of prison, after they were beaten, they gathered together with a group of people and they were sharing just how good God was. And it just says this. It says, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. And they left out of there and they kept going forward. What would happen if we began to just pray together more often and we're filled with the Spirit and we left and decided that we weren't just going to go about life as usual. I believe God would do unbelievable things through us. I believe that God still wants to do amazing things through you and through this church. But it has to be spirit-led. But it's not going to be spirit-led if we're not seeking the spirit. And man, y'all, I've been so convicted in my own life recently about trying to go through the motions without inviting God in to just lead me. So many times trying to work things out in my own gifting, my own thoughts, rather than just allowing the Spirit of God to lead through. So my hope in my prayer is that all of us would take on the mantle of being leaders. All of us would take on the mantle of being humble, of being accountable to people, of being brave and courageous, and of being led by the Spirit. For some of us, our next step means we, we, we need to receive the Spirit. We need to come to a place where we realize, I need Christ in my life. I need the Spirit to live inside of me. And here's the good news. You can do it anywhere at any time. And I promise you, he's not going to say, uh, you're not who I was looking for. He's going to say, my son and my daughter, it's so good to see you. I'm going to invite the band up, and uh, or I think it's actually just going to be Justin and we're going to play one last song as we sing. But, I, you know, sometimes I, I, I end messages in certain ways, and sometimes I, I like to end them in another way. And today I want to do a quick sort of call to action uh, thing. Because, like I said, everyone's called to be a leader. Everyone's called to be all in. And, and we're going to talk more about the community next week and how everyone was all in. But I want everyone to grab out their connection card again uh, one more time. Every single person, if, I, if you have a connection card and you don't have it, I will come down there and I'll find you. Just kidding, I probably won't. So here at our church, we have been blessed in particular having tons of kids. We've had a baby boom. And and in general, every church to be able to uh, put on a Sunday morning, to give people the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus, to experience life change, to, to, to continue on this journey of holiness, for things to be able to happen, it means that people are doing things behind the scenes. So if you've never gone past just walking in the doors and into here, you may not see that. But here's here's the reality. I'm talking uh, with family right now. Here's the reality. On a normal Sunday morning, it probably takes us 16 to 20 people to be able to put on uh, kind of a normal Sunday morning. That's not counting the band. That's not counting people in the sound booth. Uh, that's that's not counting the staff either. That's people who are greeting, who are doing coffee, who are in the nursery, who are doing kids' check-in, who are in South Creek Kids. And so it takes about that much. Now, if we got to a place where we had enough people where people only had to serve one Sunday a month, I mean, we're talking a small amount of time, that would require 60 active volunteers. We currently only have about 30 active volunteers. And so what we've realized is that through people at different transitions of life or just different things have kind of fallen off the boat on some of those things. And so what it's ended up meaning is that many volunteers who are faithful, amazing people are being asked to serve sometimes every Sunday in all sorts of different places. 
And to be honest, that just shouldn't be. Because part of being a follower of Jesus is to serve. Uh, you, you, here, here's something that may be controversial, you may not like this, but like, you can't say you're a Christ follower if you're not serving others in some sort of capacity. It's impossible. Because again, we are to emulate and follow after Jesus, and Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so that's part of our discipleship, part of our holiness. And so here's what I'm going to ask. This is kind of my big ask. On, on the back of the Connection Center, there's some different ways. We need help with, with greeters, with South Creek kids, with nursery, uh, with, with kids check-in. Uh, we, we have ways that you can serve in other aspects. And maybe you don't see something on here, but we would ask that if everyone would consider finding a place to serve. And, and, and here's the thing. It's great if you can do little things here or there, but we'd love to get people in a habit of doing a regular thing. You know, if we got to a point where you only had to serve like once every other month, we would be glad for that. If we have to start thinking of new ways where we can do better things because uh, we have more volunteers, that would be an issue I would absolutely love to have. But I promise you, I believe that for some of us, this is a next step that God wants to call us to, to grow in our faith and to grow in community here. And so I would ask that you would do this if you're even interested. Uh, let, let, talk to someone. But let me give you a few bad New Testament uh, excuses that you're probably not going to find in Scripture that some of us may play in our head. And I don't mean to be rude or mean, but I'm just saying, you ain't going to find Jesus saying this. Uh, This is my one time to be away from the kids. I can't surf. Uh, I only get this day to sleep in for that extra half hour that I might have to be here early or less. Uh, I don't think I could be here early. That's just going to be too hard for me to be 15 minutes early. Or finally, I've paid my dues, I've served enough, I've hit my, my quota. You know, it's interesting, can you imagine if Paul got to a place where after the first time he's in prison said, hit my quota, I'm done serving, I think I'm good. Can you imagine if we got to a place where, where some of the disciples who had kids was like, hey Jesus, I know you have this like whole we need to change the world thing, um, I just don't know if I can spare like this extra 30 minutes away where I'm going to have to get up early and get my kids here early. And I say all of those things in deep love and appreciation, understanding that we go through all different seasons, that there are moments where that's wholly appropriate. But here's what I'm just, I guess, saying. We need help. And we believe that God is inviting each one of us to do that. So, like I said, I'm asking each person if they would consider signing up for something. We understand not every person can work with kids. Honestly, we don't want every person to work with kids. Some of y'all might scare them. No offense. Just being real. That's why they don't let me work back there either. Um, But we need everybody all in. We need everyone to be a part of this. And it's not just for our sake to be able to do these, but I also truly think it's for your sake as well. That God wants to do something in and through you that can only happen if you're serving. And if you want ways to serve outside the walls too, I would happily give them to you. I'm going to ask you all to stand with me now. And uh, make sure you fill this out, turn this in. You'll also find that if you want to know more about some service opportunities, there will be some tables as you leave today. But uh, I thank you in advance for those of you who are going to step up uh, in some new ways. Uh, And I just really appreciate you all. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for who you are. And God, I thank you for the fact that, God, you gave us this model that we weren't created just to be served, but to serve. That, God, part of our discipleship, part of becoming more like your son Jesus is, 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 is to take away these, these, these insecurities, take away these excuses of saying, I could never be a leader, I could never serve, I could never do these things. God wants another person to, 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 to be able to hear clearly from you that, no, 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 you are my son, you are my daughter, you are royalty. You come from a bloodline 
that is great. And I have gifted you in mighty ways. I will give you the gifts. I don't call the equipped. I equip the called. And so would each one of us realize that we are called to be a leader? God, I pray that you'd give us discernment in where maybe you're calling us to be all in, where you're calling us to serve in some sort of way. And maybe some of us are, are saying it's more than this. It's walking across the, the, the street and meeting our neighbors. It's investing in the schools that our kids go to. It's investing in our grandkids. Whatever it is, would we just find a place where, God, you call us to look at others as a more valued place than ourselves? God, I love you, and I thank you just so much for your son, Jesus. God, I thank you for the fact that he has changed our life, he has made us new, and he has taught us a new way to live. It's in his name I pray. Amen.